My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Today's guest, Anne Rowe, is a storyteller. She looks at people's lives and finds the tension, the drama, the heart of their story. For me, the good stuff comes at a turnaround point. You know, when someone has to face up to a problem and either turn things around for the better or get all George Clooney in the perfect storm and go down with the ship. Poor George. But that's why I'm stupid excited to tell you about this other show from HubSpot. You know, the fine people that make this podcast. It's called The Grow Show, and this season, they're focusing on business turnaround stories. Here on Narragansett Beer, use community and grassroots marketing to bring a one-story brand back from the brink. Or you can hear how Market Basket showed us that investors aren't the only ones who own a company. It's really owned by customers and employees. Power to the fucking people. You can find The Grow Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Okay, let's bring up the music and start the show. If you've wanted yet feared to do work that is weird, this is the show you just need to hear. Anne Rowe is an obituary writer for The Economist. And let's face it, writing about death every week could sure give you a case of the sads, right? Well, not always, if you're like Anne. She gets honest about her personal take on death, but she also tells me about some of her more fun pieces. Yeah, that's right. Obituaries could be a lot of fun to write sometimes. Actually, you know what? I'll just let Anne tell you all about it. Now let's listen to them speak about their jobs, which are quite unique. Weird work. First question, just recently Stephen Hawking passed away. And I know this probably wasn't a totally unexpected death. You know, he lived a pretty long life, like longer than a lot of people expected. But for you, I was wondering if you could give me a look into what that was like for you. Like, where were you when you heard the news that Stephen Hawking had passed away? Right. Well, I was in bed. (laughs) I turned on the radio in the morning, as I always do, uh, just to see if someone's died or not. It was a Wednesday, last Wednesday, in fact. Um, Now, usually that is too late for us because the obit actually goes to press after lunch on a Wednesday. So normally, um, we would have been stuck, but actually we did have Stephen Hawking in stock. We've got um, about 20 people in what we call the morgue, um, (laughs) because they're they're famous and we know, you know, that if they die, 
even pretty late in, in our working week, we have to try and get them into the paper. So he was there and he'd been written actually not by me. I mean, I do write about 96% of them, I would say. Yeah. But he had actually written by the science editor, which was a good idea. And so I got it out. And uh, the trouble is when you get them out of the morgue, they're never quite right. You do actually have to redo them. How long does somebody sit in the morgue? Like, when was Stephen Hawking's written? I think about 10 10 years ago, possibly. It's hard to know, but I can tell you that once you get into that morgue, it's a guarantee of longevity. Because (laughs) everyone we've used in there has lived years longer than uh, we thought they would. Mandela was in there for an age, uh, Mrs. Thatcher... The Queen has been in there for an awfully long time. You know, a couple of popes, <laughs> two U.S. presidents. <laughs> but nobody nobody um, is in and out of the morgue. They don't leave fast, no. They sit there for a very long time. <laughs> I mean, Castro was there, I can't think for how long. It's odd, but, you know, we do have to get these people in there. Do you have a firm number that you keep 20 people in the morgue, or is that just kind of a rough estimate? That's a rough estimate. Okay. I, I don't think there are more than that. Okay, so you have have Stephen Hawking's obituary in the morgue. What do you do to then kind of update it to fit with the more recent part of his life? Well, in fact, it's not so much the more recent part of his life, because I think we had got in all the important discoveries, like Hawking radiation and that kind of thing. We got all that in. It had to be changed really into one of our obituaries, by which I mean, the obituaries I write are always done from the point of view of the subject. They're not done from our point of view. They're not meant to be an assessment of somebody there, how that person saw the world. And so when other people do them, I do have to give them a bit of a going over. So I had to give that one a bit of a going over. You know, all the science was fine, but it was from the point of view of the science editor and not of Stephen Hawking. So I had to sort of tip it up and turn it round a bit. And then when that was done, then... um, another uh, colleague who is a scientist wanted to get in and redo some of the physics. It was a little bit of a a fraud obit, that one. I wouldn't say it was typical. And of course, we were against the clock the whole time, too, which, uh, which didn't help. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny to think of like, all of this like big, enormous news, and you're scrambling to do edits on this piece that has been like reworked a few different times. I was just curious, could you talk more about why you have it up from the perspective of the subject versus from your perspective as, you know, Ed Rowe or as the economist? Well, because I feel that what the world is losing when someone dies is that particular point of view. The way that person saw the world, saw their life, saw their career and obsessions and what interested them. And so I do a sort of, it's not really a trick, but what I want to do, and I do it through reading their books, if they've written them or looking at interviews and watching them on YouTube, is to just kind of try and put myself in their place and see things as they saw them. Because that's what we are losing. I mean, if I write from my point of view, they're all going to be the same. I don't want my take on things. I want theirs. So they're all very different. I sometimes read them back and I can't remember writing them. It doesn't seem to be me because it isn't me. <laughs> it's them speaking. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased when that happens because I feel that that obituary has worked. It seems like such an exercise in 
being able to empathize with people that you're writing about. How do you prepare yourself to empathize with somebody who you might have radically different viewpoints of? As I say, I try and immerse myself in what they've written and in their mindset and, and what they speak about. And of course, sometimes they're not people one feels empathy with at all. You really just have to make quite an effort to get into that mind. For example, you know, when I did Osama bin Laden, yeah, that was that was not particularly empathetic. Yeah, but okay. I still <laughs> I still didn't one. want to just have a rant about him. I mean, there's no point in writing a piece that is just you know how evil this man was and so on and so on. I, I thought, how did he see things? And if they are evil as he was, then it comes over in what they say and what they think. And you've only got to repeat what they say and think, and they hang themselves with their own rope. You don't, you don't need to do it yourself. That's what I try and do. But usually they are rather more sympathetic than that. And I just have a great deal of fun sort of trying to reconstruct the context, the world they were moving in, and what it was like, you know, how they spoke and how they saw things, how they judged themselves. It's such an exercise for some of the people that you've written obituaries about. I would just like to take it back for a second to Mm. when you started writing obituaries for The Economist. So I was wondering if you could talk me through, like, how did you get that job? I asked if I could do it. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, I think it was about 2001, 2002, I started deputizing for the chap who was writing them then. In fact, we haven't done them for very long. We only started the page in 1995. And he was the only other man who wrote them. And he did them until 2003. I was deputizing for a couple of years before that. And I thought, this is a wonderful job. I so enjoyed doing it that... While he was still doing them, I went to the editor and said, when that job comes up, I'd really like to do it. And it came up in 2003. And so I took it on. Was it as kind of a prestigious a spot as it is now? Like, I feel like obituaries for, uh, you know, like The Atlantic and The Economist and, and several other publications are now like a big category of writing. When you started, was it that way? It was becoming that way, and especially, I think, in Britain, because uh, there'd been a bit of a revolution in obituary writing, which happened in the 90s, when in the broadsheet newspapers, people started writing obituaries that were warts and all, you know, where you really um, kind of laid bare what people were like, and some of them were quite scathing, and some of them were very funny, uh, whereas before they'd been fairly measured and, uh, you know, respectful and so on. Suddenly people let their hair down and there was a great vogue of the art of the obituary and it actually became a thing that people wanted to do. And so when I took them on, I did realize that it was an up and coming trade, if you like. (laughs) I wanted to do them differently from the way they were done. I still wanted to get into the nitty gritty and the small details. I love love the idea that you're riding this wave almost of obituary popularity. Yes, it's true. And it may be, there may be a demographic reason for this. This has just occurred to me. <laughs> but you know, the baby boomers going through in this giant cohort. And, uh, you know, when, once you get to your 60s and so on, you start reading obituaries rather more than you used to. And some of it is, oh, look, he died and he was only 48 or something like this. And thank God I'm 66. You know, this sort of thing. I know, it sounds terrible, but I think you're, you're, people's interest in obituaries just 
naturally increases as they get older and as the demographic changes. Big audience for them now. That is 100% not what I thought your answer was going to be to that, I would assume. (laughs) But yeah, no, I guess that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of baby boomers and obituaries get more interesting as you get older. Mm. Can you take me through your week and so I can get a sense of what the typical process is for writing one of these obituaries? Thursday is, well, that's the day when the paper goes to press. And on Thursday, I start to think, who shall I do? And I've usually got somebody in the corner of my mind when I go away for the weekend. But I don't fix on them until Monday morning, because it could be that by Monday morning, uh, when we draw up all our lists of what's going in the paper, somebody else will have come. And so I've got a little idea. And by Monday morning, I firm it up because I like to do quite out of the way characters sometimes. You know, I put them to the meeting and uh, people say, who's that and why don't you do X and Y? But generally, I get my way. Almost always I get my way, uh, which is very nice. Um, If it's somebody famous, I have to do the somebody very famous. But uh, I'm not always very pleased when that happens. So I sell my, my idea to the Monday morning meeting. And then I have about 24 hours in which to completely immerse myself in the person. And that's all I have because by Tuesday... I mean, I'll have set who it is by Monday lunchtime and by Tuesday, middle of the afternoon, I'll have to have the piece done. The whole thing has to be done by Tuesday, end of day. Tuesday, middle of the afternoon, yeah. Wow. And how much time are you spending once you once you lock it in and you're like, I'm going to do this person, you get out of the meeting, yeah. it's confirmed. How much time are you spending researching somebody? Well, all the rest of the time till about 10 o'clock at night, I race off to the London Library or if I think I might do a person, I often pre-order the book just so I've got it to save me some time. And then it's just Google, Google, Google until my eyes are nearly falling out. Um, Do you read a lot of what other people write about them or do you try and focus on the words that they said themselves? Well, I focus on what they say. But I sometimes use what other people say just to get a sense of what they look like, a little kind of physical tics. I mean, I get terms of phrase from their writings usually, and I always try and use those. You know, if they've got words they particularly like, I always try and get those in, or little phrases they often used, I'll try and get those in, because it all gives you the flavor of somebody. And sometimes I get onto Twitter, or I kind of get onto the comments on their deaths, and they'll be little remarks there from people who knew them. Hmm. And often there's little treasures, little gems hidden there. But 80% of what I want is what they have said. And and that's what I'm looking for. (laughs) I must say it's quite hard when the characters are difficult or when they're rather melancholic or something like that. You know, I I remember (laughs) when I did Ingmar Bergman's obituary, and I had to watch four of his films back to back. And I really felt like shooting myself by the end, I have to say. And uh, there was another time when I did Stockhausen. And I had yeah. to listen to a heck of a lot of Stockhausen, who I think is terrible. But I, I really had to try and get into his his head, you know, that ghastly kind of banging and twinging and twanking. And, oh, God. Anyway, I do have to do it. I mean, if I have any sort of inkling that I'm going to have to do somebody who is a famous writer, I mean, I remember when I did Arthur Miller, I think I had enough 
time that I could, you know, get get through the major plays. So I, I did give myself a bit more time because obviously these are big figures and I'm going to have to do them anyway. But generally, it is just that 24-hour, 30-hour window of immersion in the person. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Is your choice in like what you read and watch, does it tend to skew towards people who are older, who are producing things? Like, do you tend to read authors who might die soon just so you're ready? Well, I don't really have time. It's a good idea, in <laughs> fact, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it would be a good idea. But, you know, when you say are likely to die soon, you've got no idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, people can go under a bus tomorrow at the age of 40. I mean, I think in a way it's a fool's errand to try and predict who is going to die. I mean, obviously you've got some who are ancient, but I mean, who do I think? Philip Roth or someone. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody fairly old who probably we'd have to do. But I think, well, you know, I could spend my time and then I'll have forgotten it because he may (laughs) live another, you know, 10 years. And by that time, I'll think, drat, you know, I spent that whole weekend (laughs) feeding him and now, now I can't remember it. One of the things I really have noticed is like how invested you get in writing these obituaries, in the research, in the writing, in taking on that person's voice. Mm. Have you ever like really dreaded writing a particular obituary? I remember being pretty fed up in a way when I had to do Reagan's obituary. Not that he was not a very interesting man to do, but we had so much stuff in the paper that week about him. And I just felt I had no room left. I think for Mandela, that happened as well. I mean, I'm not keen on doing economists and bankers and people like that. I don't think I've ever done a banker. The reason is that we have economists and bankers all over the economists, as you would guess. (laughs) And the whole front half is about politicians. So I try not to do politicians. I really don't like doing British prime ministers. I find them really dull. <laughs> like I could kind of guess, but is there a category that you really like to do, like artists or musicians, writers? I like to do completely unknown people. Yeah. I love it. Uh, that is my absolute ideal. 
people that no one else has heard of, and yet that they've had a fascinating life. And they're always my favorites. You know, people always ask. I mean, the one I'm looking at now, because I got some of them out, yeah. it was um, one I did of the man who says, mind the gap on the underground. Who's like the voice <laughs> for mind the gap. The voice for Mind the Gap. And, and actually quite a lot of other train announcements as well. But that was such good fun to do. That was lovely. Um, actually, I mean, this is not such a, a sort of happy occasion. But when there were the bombings in Paris, yeah. um, the editor came to me and said, you know, will you do an obituary of somebody, a victim of the bombing? And there were some people there who were kind of fairly well-known musicians and people. But the person I did was actually just a civil servant. I found, I picked his name out and he was just a civil servant who'd come in from Normandy and he was a bit old to go to a concert, but he sort of fancied that he was a great fan of this sort of music. And just to find out what his life was like, the life of an ordinary Frenchman, you know, it took a lot of research, but I am a historian, you know, I've got a background in research. So I really find that very stimulating to have to do it. Really, I find it very moving to get inside these lives of people and do them instead of the famous. It sounds like when you're looking to write an obituary about famous people, you have this huge wealth of information. But when you have somebody who might be less well-known or is just kind of a normal person, you might have to kind of go out there and call and talk to their loved ones no, I never do that. You never do that. First of all, I mean, it's slightly that you don't want to intrude. Yeah. But also, I just don't want to know what other people thought about them. Is that common for obituary writers to not call the people who knew the person who's passed away? No, it isn't, I don't think. I think people generally do do that. I'm sure, in fact, that I know the local paper obituaries call the family to get the details, really, of the life, that I don't have to go through every stage of these careers. Generally, obituaries do have to do. I mean, mine are more impressions of the person. They're more portraits. Yeah. Like they don't really feel like you're writing an account of that person where it's like born this time, raised here, went to college here, moved on. That's right. It isn't like that. I prefer to proceed by themes or incidents or something like that. But I don't like going chronologically through a life. I think generally the last paragraph is a bit valedictory. You know, there'll be something there. There's a sort of dying fall. But otherwise, you know, I I just sort of zip about here and there through the life. How do you balance writing an obituary where you're not having it trashing on the person, but you're also giving an accurate representation of them? As I say, you just say what they say and you write what they thought they were seeing in their words, in their terms. And I haven't had to do one of them lately, but for example, I did um, an obituary of the sheriff in Selma, Alabama, who um, ordered the shooting on the bridge in 65, who was quite a horrible character and a real segregationist and such a racist. I thought, you know, I hate his voice, but this is a voice, thank God, that you don't hear now, this sort of vile segregationism. And I just wrote it in his voice with describing how he saw blacks and, you know, how he mocked them and this kind of thing. I just did it straight as he had said it. And oddly enough, I got no complaints about it. 
And so he was worth doing, but that is how I balance it. People say, what on earth are you giving us these details for? We don't want to know about this. You know, this guy is just a, a monster. But I thought, no, you know, human beings are not all 100% monsters, you know, even the worst of them. People write in their opinions of your obituaries, right? Like mm. about what they think about them. What is that community of people like? Like what kind of things do people <laughs> write into well, you? Um, sometimes I do somebody and I think they are going to be really annoyed that I did X or Y. Yeah. And I don't get the reaction that I think I'm going to get. But no, I generally, uh, I find that people who write in are very complimentary, and this is nice. Do you have the same but kind of opposite effect where, like, if you really love somebody and think they're amazing and incredible, are you kind of, like, backing <laughs> yourself off? No, I just have to hold myself back a bit, I think. I, I'm probably more enthusiastic in my, you know, in my wanting to do them. You know, my greatest enthusiasm is when I get somebody that is uh, is just on the edge of history or on the edge of something really interesting. That's when I get really enthusiastic about them. I mean, I, I also sometimes I do obituaries of inanimate objects or animals. I mean, there have been a few of those. <laughs> what, uh, what inanimate object have you done? Well, there's one about light bulbs. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to explain probably why I wrote an obituary of the light bulb, but uh, we had to, in Britain, there was a law that came in that w we couldn't have incandescent bulbs anymore. You have to have sort of halogen or long life bulbs or this sort of thing. In fact, you can still get the incandescent ones, but they're sort of under the counter, you know, like <laughs> drugs. <laughs> you buy them um, on a street corner or something. Yeah, so I wrote an obituary of the incandescent bulb, and that was such good fun to do. And so you've been writing obituaries for a while now, and you've done a ton of them, and you're surrounded pretty much by death and thinking about death on a daily basis. I'm not thinking about death. I'm thinking about life. I'm thinking about what these people have crammed into their, you know, short sojourn here. And most of them have really done a lot, seen a lot. You know, they're fascinating lives I'm dealing with. And I look on them as celebrations. I don't feel I'm surrounded by anything gloomy at all. I mean, my view of death anyway is that it's simply another stage that you pass on actually to a, a higher, more creative stage of life. I mean, that's my belief about death. I guess, you know, maybe that accounts for me not feeling at all gloomy about it. But everyone close to me who's died has become much more vivid to me afterwards than they were before in an extraordinary way. It, it's just endlessly fascinating looking at human beings and, uh, and what they get up to. Do people find that your humor with death can sometimes be off-putting or not? They do think it's strange. I mean, it is impossible to talk about death in Britain, or more or less, because yeah. culturally, there's no consensus about it. And I find it, it is very difficult to talk about to other people. But I do feel sad sometimes when I write the obituaries. Writing an obit of someone who's young is always sad. Because you feel what that life could have been. I mean, some of them are heartbreaking. I think uh, the most difficult one I had to do was um, about a little boy in Syria um, who was a sitcom star. Hmm. 
and his name was Kuzai Abtini. Um, he was the star of a sort of comedy that aired in Aleppo uh, on the local TV. And he played an adult. He played a grown-up. And it, all the parts were played by children playing grown-ups. And that was <laughs> the comic effect. You know, he was the patriarch and he was kind of stomping about, you know, um, telling off his wife and this kind of thing. And he was a huge star and he was keeping everybody laughing in that city when it was under that awful siege. And then, you know, his father one day said, you know, we're not staying here anymore. We must get out. And he was killed as they were getting out. And he was 14. And, you know, that was, that was terrible. And you can tell I still think it's terrible now because I had a really wonderful photograph of him, you know, in his dressing room at the TV studio, looking in the mirror and kind of dreaming of the star that he was going to become. It was just terrible. I mean, I think of all the obits I've done, that's probably the one that's moved me the most. So I'm not always quite so um, happy and sunny about it because most have lived long, full lives, but just sometimes they, they really haven't. And you think this is, this is such a waste. This is so awful. But, you know, perhaps by writing the obituary, you can I guess, add to the sum of people feeling this war has simply got to stop, you know. But when people ask me at parties what I do, and I say I write obituaries, the reaction is almost always, oh, God, that must be awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and sometimes people just don't know how to continue it. It's almost as if you'd said you were an accountant or something. <laughs> Can I ask you, broaching subjects, potentially morbid questions, have you written your own obituary? No, I haven't. I sometimes think about it because you know people do that now. Yeah. Um, I sometimes think about it and I think, well, who on earth would I trust to do mine? Because I don't think I would trust anyone except possibly one of my sons. Oh. I just don't feel people know the real me. And then the natural progression from that is, well, how do I think I know anybody yeah, else? Yeah, that's that? 100% what I'm, 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 I'm sitting here on the edge of my seat. I'm like, I'm like, oh, you're, you can write obituaries about everyone else, but no one can write. I, you know, yes, but nobody else is going to write about me. I know it's ridiculous, isn't it? But I just think... I bet they're going to spend a lot of time, if they do my obituary, talking about all my years at The Economist, because I've been here more than 40 years. Um, they're going to make a big deal of that. What they don't know is that when I'm sitting in The Economist, my mind is elsewhere almost all the time. I mean, it's either on what I'm writing or it's on my books that I'm doing or it's daydreaming or thinking about something totally different. Um, it really doesn't matter to me where I um, this has been this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show, and I just want to thank you so much for sharing your experience. Oh, that's a great pleasure, Sam. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> Hot damn! That was a surprisingly fun episode for talking about death. We'd like to thank Tom Amos, Anne, and the rest of the folks at The Economist. Y'all are awesome to work with. Now, Anne got me thinking about how important it is to be remembered. And after thinking about it for a while, after milling it over, I want people to remember me like this. I want them to say, Sam was the host of that incredibly popular podcast, Weird Work, the one that later became a TV show, then a movie, then it was on Space Flicks. 
If you want to help me reach my dream of ending up on Space Flicks, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. As always, I'm your host, Sam Balter, and stay weird, you immortal floating stardust. Space Flicks! Where movies are made in space. Zero gravity. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.